This is an ABC podcast. Come na Māori, Malo ni, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol, as we welcome you in for a Wednesday morning. Binaka, and thank you for tuning in. On today's show, a deadly stray dog issue in the Solomon Islands. How is the hike price on rice affecting our Pacific families? And guava and gava. That's right, flavoured gava. Will it work? Well, we'll talk more on that later in the show. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. In your search engine, just type ABC Pacific Beat. And again, please feel free to share across all your social media platforms. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, residents on the island of Gizor in the Solomon Islands are urging their government to step in and address the issues of stray dogs. Their call comes after a young man was mauled to death last week. As ABC reporter Jan Kahoot reports of a mass culling in the pipelines, as to when, that part is unclear. Dogs are common in Solomon Islands. But on the island of Gizil, local government officials are scrambling to deal with a deadly problem. Town clerk Charles Kelly says their stray dog problem is out of control. My, my, my friend, I, I cannot tell you by number. Yeah? It is, it is uh, more, more than what I, we can think of. Even now, I'm walking, looking, sitting in here, I'm peeping up from the window. I see dogs roaming around with no collars. It means that they're stray dogs. Gizo is Solomon Island's tourism hub, well known for its dive spots. But lately, both tourists and residents have had to be very cautious. Manodari is the manager of Fat Boys Resort. Yeah, it's quite, it's 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 bad. Yeah, because it's dangerous. It's not safe. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, like it could it could happen to anyone. Who knows? Yeah, if you're there, wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, it could happen to you and stuff like that. Yeah, so. They usually come out at night, yeah, come out in numbers, like 20, more than 20 of them, yeah. So, yeah, it's a big, big group, yeah. Mr. Kelly says Gizo's dog problem slowly crept on them. No, I, I, I feel that we have should have done dog issues earlier. When I was appointed the Gizo town clerk two, three years ago, I raised the point about, uh, you know, let's revisit the dog, dog ordinances, how and where we can improve that. Because we do not have enough resources. But uh, I think we are addressing the issue too late. We should have done that a long time. Last week, a young man was mauled by a pack of 15 dogs and died of his injuries two days later. His death sent shockwaves through the community. Constance Hemmer is the owner of Coffee Station Cafe. We've always had attacks that are minor. This has um, this is the first one that's actually succumbed to um, the injuries. She says the population of stray dogs has grown out of control because of a lack of vets on the island. I believe funding costs and everything would all add add to it, and we are a very small town. To have the space, you know, right now we we're still dealing with just having to you know, your basic things that as in, you know, rubbish collection and everything like that still needs to be also managed too. So, you know, that's another part that just 
is being left until I think all other issues are being addressed. Mr Kelly says it's likely the man died from rabies. And I just talked to the, to the biosecurity officer in Honiara right now that they are also interested with the possibility to come and visit Giza if the dogs have uh, rabies as well. But, you know, the dog, it is very scary now. Rabies are caused by a type of virus called lysivirus that is usually acquired from a bite or scratch from an infected animal. Manodari from Fat Boys believes the only situation is a culling of the dog population. Now everyone's thinking of uh, yeah, getting rid of the stray dogs and stuff, which is quite sad, but for safety reasons, yeah, I think that's the only option. The government is now looking for a local veterinary doctor to put the dogs down. But vets are scarce in Solomon Islands. So for the time being, Giza residents have been told to be cautious and avoid nighttime trips. And that's ABC reporter Jan Kahoot with that story. How often do you eat rice? Well, for many Pacific families, the staple food is a part of everyday life. But with rice prices reaching the highest point in almost 12 years, there's concern about the impact it will have on Pacific families. ABC reporter Marion Farr takes a look. Cooking rice is a part of everyday life for Rosalind Aqua. Sometimes we have rice for breakfast, lunch and dinner. As a mother and grandmother in Papua New Guinea, the 61-year-old has many mouths to feed. She also runs a safe house for women and children escaping domestic violence. In our PNV way, when people come, we do good to them. We at least give them a plate of food or something. But she's noticed the cost of rice has been going up. In Kimbi, in, in Putmosby, everywhere, the price of rice has gone up, starting from last year and this year. In July, the price of rice exports around the world reached their highest point in almost 12 years. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization's Rice Price Index rose 2.8% in July, a 19.7% increase from this time last year. Rosalind Ackowit says she's spending almost 100 kina for a 10 kilogram bag of rice. We used to buy it for 50 kina a bag. Experts say the price hikes are related to the war in Ukraine, recent weather events and politics in India. David Ubilava is an expert in agricultural economics from the University of Sydney. It has started with the export ban that India introduced on the 20th of July. India is the world's largest seller of rice, accounting for 40% of global exports. But late last month, the country decided to stop sending non-Basmati rice overseas due to concerns about local supply. So banning those exports, that means that considerable amount of rice that used to be uh, available on the global market or was expected to be available on the global market uh, is removed from there. David Ubilava says that's what's pushing the prices up. In fact, in past two weeks, prices of rice have been going up, even though prices of other 
grains have plateaued or have gone down a little bit. So it kind of shows that most likely this effect is due to this export ban by India. India isn't the only exporter of rice. Most Pacific countries rely predominantly on China and Taiwan for their rice, according to OEC trade data. Although some Pacific countries do grow their own rice, it's not enough to satisfy local demand. Papua New Guinea is the largest buyer of Indian rice, with imports valued at over 18 million US dollars in 2021. Tonga, on the other hand, is the most heavily reliant on Indian rice, spending over 100,000 US dollars on the product in the same year. David Ubilava says it's good to have diverse markets for rice. But the problem is that uh, there's less of it available at higher price. That means even countries that don't rely on India for rice could still see an upward shift in prices. So when we are talking about low-income households in countries that heavily depend on imports, that is potentially a problem. It could be a few weeks before the price hikes hit Pacific shelves. Usually there is a bit of delay. Also, depending on the kind of contractual arrangements are there, It may take a bit of a while before retailers transfer this price increase to consumers. But this is not the first time India has halted rice exports. Some people probably are having a flashback from 2008 when, you know, the rice crisis happened and that started also with India imposing uh, export ban. After that, other rice producing countries followed suit and stopped sending rice overseas in order to protect their own domestic stocks. And then there was an extreme shortage and there was a huge spike, three times increase in rice export prices. But also what we observed then is that in a few months' time, their prices went down, not all the way to uh, the pre-spike levels, but considerably lower than than during the peak period. David Ubilava hopes that rice prices will go down eventually. For Pacific Islanders like Rosalind Akua, there's a lot at stake. We are very worried But who is there to listen to us? PNG resident Rosalind Akua ending Marion Farr report there. Pacific Beat. The Australian government has updated its international development plan for the first time in a decade with a focus on the Pacific. Its commitment to the new policy is to counter the influence of China in the region and become its partner of choice. ABC reporter Dupravka Volada reports. The development community in the Pacific is welcoming changes to Australia's new aid policy. And the new changes announced yesterday, future Australian aid must focus on gender equality and climate change. Pat Conroy is Australia's Pacific Affairs Minister. Our requirement that in the long term 80% of all programs have a climate objective and 80% have a gender objective are all about advancing the interests of our partners and having programs that reflect Australian values. The new policy outlines in detail how Australia should spend its aid budget. There'll be new targets set about local job creation rather than relying on a foreign workforce. Many Pacific countries face huge debts and these targets are set to boost local economic growth. It comes as Australia wants to cement its position as the partner of choice for the Pacific region, in light of competition from countries such as China. 
there's no point denying the fact that there is geostrategic competition going on in our region uh, and Australia is fighting very hard to be the partner of choice for that region. We're proud to be the security partner of choice. Flora Vano from the NGO Action Aid in Vanuatu is at the forefront working with women and children affected by climate change. She thinks it's a good step in the right direction. I would be, you know, celebrating, you know, getting that achievement across. We have been advocating it for some time. And uh, for me to see that Australia have taken that step and we are pleased if it changes for the good and having it there for a longer term, I think we will, we will make some big and huge changes. Mark Purcell, CEO of the Australian Council for International Development, is also optimistic about the change. This framework that the government has launched really gives a plan for how we can do that by tackling climate, tackling, tackling uh, the, the number of women living in poverty and improving their lives, and actually helping tackle problems like food insecurity that are only going to get worse because of the changing climate. While supportive of the policy direction, aid agency Save the Children says the government should focus more on the needs of children. Its Pacific Regional Director is Kim Cook sets out a really strong framework in tackling those issues and especially highlighting some of the greatest threats that we have in this region, like climate change and gender inequality. Where the policy falls short is in considering the experiences of voices and of children and young people in the Pacific. The government will also establish a new fund to provide direct support to community organizations. ABC reporter Dubravka Volida reporting there. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Without a doubt, Gover's popularity in the Pacific is unmatched. The drink has its traditional roots in Fiji, Tonga, Samoa and Vanuatu, but its popularity is also growing in places like Solomon Islands and Kiribati. But now in a bid to get it even more popular to non-Pacific markets, there are moves to add flavour to it, to get chocolate or guava-flavoured Gover. Joining me now is Fe'ilo Akitao Kahotevi, founder of Pacifica Cover Forum and a Gover enthusiast with NIC Welcome to the show. Yeah, how are you? I am good, thank you, <laughs> Faye, for joining us. As a Gava enthusiast, what are your thoughts about Flavor Gava? Um, thanks, Eggy. I think it, it, it basically is, is driven by the market, eh? Um, and so if, if you do have uh, uh, a market demand for, for, for such... Um, for such products, uh, you know, I, I I don't see any reason why, uh, you know, one shouldn't be entrepreneurial and and uh, engaging. We have a number of um, Pacific Cover Forum members, and and in their own own businesses, have um, began to 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 look at uh, um, adding flavor to 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 cover. Um, there are some concerns about you know the the, the cultural dimension of it, uh, and and uh, that's that's a discussion that's that's being held at present. Um, but uh, you know, notwithstanding that, I think there, there there's a lot of space for uh, for these types of innovation um, and 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 technologies and tastes to uh, to 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 develop. Eh? Um, you have people uh, like in Florida and 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 in Honolulu, uh, the younger generation, um, uh, Palangi generation, European, uh, who have not grown up with kava. Um, but are coming to um, like cover as a as a, as its effects 
for its effects and 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 for the um, the sedative effects and relaxing effects that he adds. And if you know if that's you know adding flavour to it, why not? Yeah. But I do have to ask in regards because I want to touch on this traditions and culture. Have they overstepped mm. the line or not? Well, I mean, would it not take away from the quality or even the uniqueness of what Gava is? <clears throat> I think um, there are several there are several positions um, around culture and Kava, eh? um, because Kava has always evolved with culture, um, and and you know what what we've had uh, in the past when 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 Kava was just a drink for the chiefs. Uh, it was made by uh, uh, certain people in the in the clan. Um, now, Kava is being oh, well in 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 the in the in the late fifties, early sixties, coming into the seventies. Kava evolved as well uh, to become a popular drink, drunk by everybody uh, and accessible to everyone. Right? And so, this from 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 a cultural standpoint, culture needs to evolve, and and Kava needs to evolve with it. And so, if if that is the trend, then then let's let's make sure that what 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 is being shared and what is being uh, produced as kava, um, if we want to be culturally uh, mindful, that we that we maintain a certain cultural uh, um, 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 pillar in terms of what culture is to kava and what kava is to culture, but that should not stop um, uh, innovation from happening, yeah. um, and and that should not stop the demand. Eh? Faye, is it enough then for companies to say uh, it broadens its appeal and the money made from it helps the farmers live a, de- a decent living? Your thoughts? Um, in terms of uh, decent living, I, I think definitely uh, the, 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 there is uh, positive returns to be made uh, from, from, from cover uh, farmers uh, producing more cover uh, to, 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 to meet market demand. But you will not, you will not take away, Aggie, you will not take away uh, the cultural importance of of cover, say for example, for the for the Tongan culture, even for the Fijian culture, um, you know, it's 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 important. It's there, uh, but I mean, look at the likes of Kiribati, for example, <clears throat> where cover was not part of their culture. Now it's it is part of their culture in Kiribati. Uh, look at the likes of the Solomons, where cover was there. Um, uh, before the missionaries came and took it away, and now cover was introduced back in the eighties into the Solomon Islands, and they have absolutely no cultural um, um, uh, uh, re- references with regards to kava. But culture now and kava is brought back into the culture of the Solomon Islands. And, and it's a wonderful development that, that you know, that, that, um, that, that people should go in and, and, and experience where a certain culture in the Pacific is now taking in and integrating kava into its own cultural development and growth. Mm, thank you for that, Faye. I want to know, there have been complaints mm. that the price of Gava has actually dropped in some countries after yes. Australia opened <laughs> up the market for its pilot program. <laughs> Is this actually being found yes. across the Pacific? Yes, yes. I mean, the, 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 there has been just a, a, a massive uh, uh, um, um, production of, of Gava to meet the, the, um, the, the Australian demand. Eh? Um, but what has happened is that there has been an overproduction. Uh, like... Typically, like any 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 anyone who would be following the cover uh, cover market trend, uh, we usually produce more than we actually need. Um, and the advice to the farmers now is 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 really you know keep the cover in the ground, 
and and just take a little bit. There's 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 a saturation of the market now. You know, in Tonga the cover is now at fifty dollars, um, and and will decrease if if there's if there's you know there's there's a <laughs> our 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 cover consumers in Tonga are becoming more selective with their cover, and so uh, this this is an indication of of the the availability of good cover uh, around in Tonga, and also in Fiji. I mean, the local market in and in and of itself is is saturated. Yeah. Faye, I have to ask though, have you ever tasted flavored cover? If there was uh, a flavor you'd like, what would that be? Um, you know what? The the the, the vanilla flavored cover for is, is 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 not too bad. I'm I'm a I'm a vanilla enthusiast, but um I I I I, I tasted it, I like it. Um and but it doesn't take away from uh from the social um, attraction of kava when you are sitting around with friends, um, having a bowl of kava, relaxing into the evening, listening to songs. I think that is what attracts people to kava. It's the social gathering and 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 the cultural uh, um, 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 cultural needs and relationships that are being formed, consolidated and strengthened when you sit around and drink kava. Um, and and that's 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 the cultural dimension of cover. That's that's you know what what we experience cover uh, for in the Pacific, and may, maybe in in the US they 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 experience cover differently. Um, all 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 said, cover is still cover, and cover is an excellent drink. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a a drug. It's a sedative. It relaxes the body, and it's um, it's appealing to 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 to. To today's uh, society, but does pineapple and guava and guava really go together? <laughs> well, I mean, you look at um, look at what we do when when we when we do um, when we do drink guava uh, in the Pacific. If you look at, for example, in Vanuatu, when people take guava, they take something to to chase the guava, like a chaser. Eh? Um, now. What's the difference between taking cover and having a, a, a piece of pawpaw to chase chase with ch- chase that with, and then having kappa that's already infused with pawpaw um uh with a pawpaw taste? If you if if you if you catch my drift, eh? So when you drink cover, normally like in every every night here around in Tonga, you drink cover, some people use uh, chips. Some people drink oranges. Some, I mean, um, eat oranges. Some people eat apples. So, what would be the difference of eating apples after you drank a cava and having a cava-induced apple-flavored drink? I will have to try that one day, <laughs> Faye. Uh, finally, look, just before we let you go, though, just your message. I mean, you, yeah. you, you spoke about the involvement of Gava itself across the Pacific and overseas to yes. Australia, America. What would be yes. your message this morning for people to have to accept that this is where Gava is going? I think, I think there's a market and a space for everybody. Uh, we, you know, in, in, in the Pacific, our cultures have been accommodating for so long. That's number one. Number two, kava has also evolved from where we were back in the 1920s to where we are today, 2022 and 2023. Kava has come a long way. <clears throat> I've just found, I've just discovered, thanks to a, a good friend of mine in, in, in Vanuatu, Michael Luze, uh, he he just shared with me some documentation that kava was already known 
to the scientific world back in the 1870s. So Kava has come a long way, yeah? um, if, if, if we like it, whether we like it or not. And Kava culture has also evolved uh, uh, with it. Yeah? And so I think the message for us is, you know, Kava has its space in culture and culture is important for Kava. But Kava has also evolved uh, through the ages, through the years to, 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 to what it is today, where it is a product that is attracting the attention of the younger um, Caucasian Western um, generation who are looking for uh, drinks that are relaxing uh, given today's stressful world. This is one way of doing it. And, and, and if you want to use and if you want to experience kava in the cultural setting, come to the Pacific. If you want to experience kava in a bar, you know, uh, you know go, 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 go to Hawaii or even go to Suva for that matter. Um, I, just, just, just look at the at at the growth of the cover bars in Fiji. We started with no more than maybe six or or, or less than five uh, uh, three years ago. Today we have about I think thirty or forty cover bars in Fiji alone. Right, so it's a growing trend. Cover is being sold. Ah. Uh, to attract and to uh, to meet the demand of our, um, our 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 population and our market, and if you go into these cover bars, Aggie, you will you will you will see that people still practice the cultural rituals around cover in the cover bars. Okay? So that is development. That is an evol- That that is an evolution of cover and the evolution of the culture of cover that's happening. And we should appreciate that. Take that for what it is. Absolutely. But also respect. Yeah. Mm, respect mm. the fact that, you know, if the king is now recognized when he drinks his, his, his cover, that is culture also. And we should respect that as well. Eh? I like that, Faye. It's definitely a conversation to continue to have. Just want to say, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. No, no worries. Yeah. That is Fa'ilo Akitao Kahotevi from the Pacifica Gava Forum and very much an enthusiast of Gava. Stay tuned. Uh, coming up next is your news wrap with producer Nick Fogarty here on Pacific Beat. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9.30 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, it is that time where we get our news wrap uh, from producer uh, Nick Fogarty, who is joining us uh, this morning in the studio. How are you doing? Good, Aggie. How good. Are you? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm good. I feel like, like a little bit of cover right now, but <laughs> hopefully... <laughs>
we can get to that. But first, American Samoa, they've sought the assistance of the United States to help it gain full membership uh, of the Pacific Islands Forum. They sure have. Uh, it's been revealed by Talanae.com that American Samoa's Governor Lemanu uh, Peleti Maonga has written to the Assistant Secretary of State, Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Daniel Crittenbrink, uh, to say that American Samoa's position within the organisation should be upgraded. At the moment, of course, American Samoa's status means it can't actively participate in the forum's meetings and decisions. So in his correspondence with the US, uh, Lamanu reportedly promised to advocate for US interests if the Territory gains membership to the forum. The governor also pointed out that France and New Zealand permit their Pacific territories to be full PIF members, saying, quote, considering the absence of a US vote in the PIF, American Samoa can play a pivotal role by advocating for US interests in the forum, particularly in light of growing influences in the Pacific, including from China. Mm. Uh, I think even more concerning news in terms of climate change, uh, with July being officially the hottest month ever recorded on Earth. Uh, yes, very concerning. Um, the other day on Pacific Beat, we were hearing about the near record low temperatures for the Pacific in recent weeks. Uh, but for the world in general, July was indeed the hottest month ever recorded on Earth. So the European Union's Climate Observatory has confirmed that July was 0.33 degrees Celsius higher than the record set in July 2019 when the average temperature was 16.63 degrees Celsius. Uh, the, uh, the month July is estimated to have been around 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than the average for the years 1850 to 1900, so quite a, a rise there over that time, while the world's oceans also set a new temperature record rising to 20.96 degrees Celsius on July 30, according to the observatory data. So the observatory says there's now a greater than 50% chance that Earth's global temperature will reach 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial era temperatures by the year 2028, at least temporarily increasing the risk of triggering climate tipping points with even greater human impacts. That's crazy. I just heard in Phoenix, Arizona, we already know it's such a hot place. It's like a desert. Mm. I think they were hitting over 43 degrees. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Back in February, we heard that Vanuatu was planning to start offering licenses for businesses uh, to grow and sell medical cannabis, uh, medical cannabis, sorry, and hemp around the country. Uh, There's been some progress on that, right? Yeah. The Vanuatu Daily Post is reporting that the Advisory Committee for Medicinal Cannabis and Industrial Hemp has approved four licences since the signing of the regulation in February, with the four companies having met requirements to legally cultivate, manufacture or export cannabis and hemp for medicinal and industrial purposes. So the businesses that were granted those licences will be announced next week by the Agriculture Minister Nako Natuman, and those licences will then be issued as well, with each licence having an operational period of 10 years and an annual fee of 10 million VATU. So the Post reports that more licences are yet to be submitted to the committee and get clearance by Interpol, um, which is a requirement of the Act. Nice. Thank you very much, Nick, for the update of our news wrap there. 
Despite opposition across the Pacific, Japan is still planning to release treated radioactive water from the tsunami-wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant into the ocean as early as late August. Local media are reporting this will most likely happen soon after Prime Minister Fumio Kishida meets with his US and South Korean counterparts next week. Beverly O'Connor spoke to ABC's North Asia correspondent James Oten, who says the need to release the waste is partly because they're running out of space to hold the water. There's 1.3 million tonnes of this treated wastewater on the uh, Fukushima nuclear power plant site. And one of the issues is that the uh, operators and and those who are conducting the cleanup operation, the massive cleanup operation, they're simply running out of room. Uh, This water is being used to keep the melted nuclear reactors cool. Uh, There's also groundwater that adds to the problem and rain that adds to the problem. So they've been accumulating all this water, about 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools amount of water over the more than a decade now, and it has to go somewhere. Uh, They're running out of room, and also they need to start the next phase of the cleanup. And the, The plant's operators are saying they need to uh, make some room for the next phase of the cleanup where they'll start addressing the melted nuclear reactors I just mentioned. So we know that deadline is next year, and they've been saying this year all along they're going to be releasing the water, start releasing the water, I should say, in summer. Well, we're approaching the end of summer now. Uh, so this month or maybe next month uh, does seem likely. That's what media reports are saying. There have been delays before, but what's really happened recently is it's cleared two hurdles uh, This uh, to start the release. One is that Japan's uh, top uh, authority has given the green light to start releasing the water. But importantly, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the UN nuclear watchdog, has finished its two-year Uh, review into the process and effectively given the green light as well, uh, saying that it does fall within international norms, this plan, and that it would have a really minimal, really low uh, impact uh, on the environment, uh, really a safe, uh, negligible impact on the environment. Uh, So with those two hurdles cleared now, Japan really uh, will go through this process we expect in coming weeks. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about those hurdles, those sort of... um hurdles that they wanted to to cross to sort of demonstrate that the water was now safe. But despite that, there are still a lot of people that are quite unhappy with this idea. Well, certainly starting off with fishermen, for instance, and from the community perspective, you know, there are mixed views in Fukushima. There are people who just want to get on with it now. We've been talking about it for so many years and have just accepted that it's got to, that it's got to happen. Uh, but there are other fishermen who are genuinely worried about that the release of this water uh, will contaminate fish or will lead to reputational damage, even if there is no obvious impact on the fish uh, and measurable impact on the fish. People might just see that this fish is from Fukushima and want to play it extra safe and not touch it. Uh, So whether it has a real or uh, a perceived impact um, is something that local fishermen are worried about. We see the same in South Korea and China and throughout the Pacific fishing people are quite anxious about the impact this will have on their fish. But given that we have the IAEA report that has come out, that has won some people over. South Korea, for instance, which was previously opposed to this move, uh, they have accepted that the release does fit within international standards. They're effectively saying it's okay. They are keeping, though, a ban for now on food from the Fukushima region. Uh, But we've seen other countries, you know, uh, the, the, the Cook Islands Prime Minister and 
PIF chairman, Pacific Islands Forum chairman, Mark Cook, has said that uh, he accepts it's not in breach of international treaties. Uh, and Fiji has come on recently saying that they think it can go ahead. But meanwhile, we've got China, which is saying absolutely no way. They're not happy with the IAEA's report, and they're going uh, very much against trying to get uh, momentum against Japan's plans to release the water. And both China and Hong Kong, for instance, are keeping their bans on any food, in fact, expanding their bans on any food that's deemed from around the Fukushima region. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the plan for the release, how it's going to happen, and and if there are further safeguards in place in case something goes wrong while they are going through this release. So what Japan said uh, for a while now, and the plants operators TEPCO, is that, first of all, the water that's being treated goes through a very intense filtration system that removes radionuclides uh, from the water, the contaminants, effectively. There is one key exception, and that's a thing called tritium. Now, tritium is a radioactive form of hydrogen and it can't be removed from the water. So what they will do, as well as filtering the water of all these contaminants, they dilute it down so that the tritium falls within safe drinking standards. They say seven times lower than what the World Health Organization says is safe. And it's important to acknowledge that tritium is released from other nuclear plants across the world, from China all the way to Europe. So it's quite a common thing to be released into the water and they've said that only that water that is checked by an independent third party will be released slowly. But this is a three- to four-decade process. They're not just going to pump the 1.3 million tonnes of water within a few weeks or months. This is 30 to 40 years. And the IAEA has said they'll be there for the whole process to keep tabs on this process. They've accepted the plans for now, but they've assured people in the Indo-Pacific that they'll be there watching and scrutinising this every step of the way, Bev. Yeah. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, it'll it'll start happening. It'll uh, hopefully a lot of this is about perception, James, the fact that, you know, it's nuclear waste from one of the worst ever nuclear disasters. So a lot of it is just trying to happen, let it happen slowly and reassure people as they go. Well, one of the things as well, with the water actually being pumped out, as I mentioned, you can't remove tritium from the water. It's a thing called tritiated water. It's quite common from nuclear power plants. It'll be diluted to those safe levels, and then it will be pumped out. There's a pipe that's about two kilometres out, and it will slowly be released. And the plant's operators and those who are behind this release plan are saying that it'll be even diluted where within about three kilometres from this point uh, in the ocean, you won't even be able to detect the tritium. So they're really trying to emphasise that this will be fine. But, of course, at the same time, given it's taken so long to get to this point, uh, surely they'll be crossing their T's and dotting their I's to make sure there are no mishaps early on in this process, um, given the reputational damage that people are so fearful of. The ABC's North Asia correspondent, James Oten, speaking to Beverly O'Connor. The women of league are right here. The skill. Harley is over to score. That was slick. The power. Power stepping. Beats one player. Beats two players. Still pumping away. Power. The magic. Up and runs the football, makes the break, slips the tackle, goes all the way to the corner, herself and slams it down. The 2023 Women's NRL Premiership on ABC Radio Australia. And she goes herself and scores. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. 
Now, the West Australian government's confirmed its new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws will be scrapped. The Labour Premier, Roger Cook, apologised for what he said was the confusion and division created by the legislation, which was drafted after the destruction of ancient rock shelters at Dukin Gorge and came into effect just five weeks ago. But Mr Cook has denied the decision was made after pressure from the federal government. Concerned, the laws were fueling the voice to Parliament referendum's no campaign. Jacqueline Breen reports. After mounting speculation, Premier Roger Cook fronted the media this morning to confirm what can only be described as a backflip. WA's new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act will be scrapped. Put simply, the laws went too far, were too prescriptive, too complicated and placed unnecessary burdens on everyday Western Australian property owners. Premier Cook conceded Labor had gotten the balance wrong, but says it's listened to the public mood. As Premier, I understand that the legislation has unintentionally caused stress, confusion and division in the community. And for that, I'm sorry. The laws passed Parliament early last year but took effect at the start of July, replacing the scheme that allowed mining giant Rio Tinto to destroy the ancient caves at Jukan Gorge in the Pilbara. But farming groups and the WA opposition have waged a fierce campaign, especially against the requirement for landholders to organise and pay for their own heritage surveys with only a few exemptions. Roger Cook says the laws will be scrapped altogether and the government will survey high-priority sections of the state over the next decade to determine if there are any heritage considerations. Instead, WA's 50-year-old Heritage Act will now be restored and simple, effective amendments will be made to it. Today's announcement is about listening to the people of Western Australia. It's about carefully considering the circumstances in front of us. The Duke and Gorge tragedy was a global embarrassment for Australia. Something needed to be done. No one can argue with that. But our legislative response was wrong. Premier Cook says the new amendments are designed to prevent a repeat of the Jukan Gorge disaster by giving traditional owners appeal rights on any application that will impact cultural heritage. The news that the Act would be scrapped was welcomed cautiously by some Aboriginal groups. Kimberley Land Council CEO Tyrone Garston says traditional owners wanted veto rights in the wake of Jukan Gorge or a right of appeal at the very least. The Aboriginal community didn't support the new laws going through in the first place. It didn't go far enough. And it, it was too bureaucratic. And, and, and quite rightly, like the grazers and the pastors are talking about, too onerous. Uh, so really we were looking at trying to simplify the process to ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders had made decisions about the Aboriginal cultural heritage impacts on their country. But in a statement, the native title holders of Jukan Gorge say the backflip will help industry and hurt First Nations groups. The head of WA Farmers, Trevor Whittington, says he still wants improvements to the old Act and exemptions from heritage surveys for farmers with cleared land. But he sees the backflip as a win. Oh, without a doubt. We've been banging on this very loudly for the last two years during the so-called consultation process, which is a complete sham. Uh, you know, we've revved up the the, uh, the opposition, the Lips and the Nats, because they were, you know, in fear of being accused of being racist with the whole voice debate. Uh, it's been a, a lonely two years. The voice debate was linked to the heritage laws by some no campaigners and in media coverage. 
In the Liberal Party room today, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, welcomed the WA government's decision linking the dumped heritage laws to the referendum for The Voice. The Kimberley Land Council's Tyrone Garston says they're separate issues being linked to create confusion. And, you know, I would be along the views to say that had we had a voice to Parliament, we wouldn't be in this predicament we are right now. WA Premier Roger Cook was asked if concern about the Yes campaign played a part in the backflip. I want to make this very clear. I've not had any communication with the Prime Minister's office or any federal members in relation to uh, these laws. Um, the only contact I've had with the federal government on, in relation to these laws is when I contacted the Prime Minister yesterday to announce that we'd be likely to move in this direction. The WA government also says it will consult with industry and mining groups about the new amendments. And that is Jacqueline Breen reporting there. Recapping our main story from this morning. Residents on the island of Gizo and the Solomon Islands are urging their government to step in and address the issue of stray dogs after a young man was mauled to death last week. They usually come out at night. Yeah, come out in numbers, like 20, more than 20 of them, yeah. No, I, I, I feel that we have should done a dog issues earlier. We do not have enough resources, but uh, I think we are addressing the issue too late. Remember, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time. I'll be back tomorrow, 6 a.m. PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though. News is next, followed by Jacob McGuire on Nisha Daily. Till next time, I'm Aggie Dubol. Appreciate your company here on Pacific Beat.